Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about being a living sacrifice, or in other words, a sermon about living the Christian life. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to give you some exciting news. Our church is back to gathering in Wilsonville on Sundays. For about five months, we were using a church building in Oregon City for our services. Thank you, Hope International, for your generosity and hospitality. While it was a good place for us, we've really missed meeting in the city where our church has its home base and where most of our people are, and we are incredibly glad to be back. For the next few months, we'll be meeting at Meridian Creek Middle School. If you live in our area, we would love for you to join us. We will do our best to make sure it is a safe and impactful gathering. And whether you live near us or not, we hope that you'll join us in thanking God for his continuous provision throughout the last year. He has given us a place to record or meet for services every single week, and we are so grateful for that. Again, thank you for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So I am preaching a sermon that's titled Simple devotion. And I'm looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. That's our text today. It builds on everything that Pastor Chad has been preaching on for the last several weeks. And uh, last week, of course, uh, was a beautiful concluding section of a three-chapter part of the book of Romans that dealt with the problem of unbelief. If Jesus is the Messiah to the Jews, why don't more people believe in Jesus? Why don't more Jews accept him or recognize him? Paul was dealing with that thorny theological issue and then ends in this doxology of praise because as Paul was writing this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I have to imagine that he reached that part of the book of Romans and he said to himself, Man, this is just amazing. How God has put everything together is absolutely mind-blowing. Paul, from the very outset, from the very beginning of the book of Romans, was explaining the gospel. He said in chapter 1, verse 16, which is the theme verse of Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power to save. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, for in it is revealed God's power. Now, everything Paul does in our modern translations for the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is explain the gospel. He unpacks it in the most wonderful of ways. He talks about how God shut up all people under sin. The fact is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all stand in equal need of God's salvation through Christ. It doesn't matter what our backgrounds are. It doesn't matter what our personal achievements are. Up to that point, we need Jesus. And without Jesus and without his saving work on the cross, we are spiritually bankrupt. And the wonderful news is we don't have to access this through law-keeping, through good works, through human effort. We access it through faith. 
And Paul uses the example of Abraham in the book of Romans to describe how he is the father of the faithful. And he's the father of the faithful for everyone because he was justified by faith before he was circumcised, which later became the symbol of the law of Moses. Abraham was justified as a simple human being before God when he exercised faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Paul says in Romans 4. And he says in chapter 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So it's wonderful news. In fact, it changes us from the inside out. And that's what he deals with in chapter 6 and 7, where Efforts to obey God through law-keeping will always fail because inside of us is this constant tendency to disobey and rebel. Uh, God's grace abounds and transforms us in ways that nothing else ever could. And, and you, you know what it's like when you've tried to discipline yourself. I mean, think of, for those of us who've gone on diets, you know, when you try to do a little weight loss, a regimen, as soon as you tell yourself you can't have that cheesecake, even if you don't like cheesecake, I mean, as soon as you tell yourself you can't have it, what do you think about? You think about cheesecake all the time. It's like, and, and it doesn't even connect. You know, why, why is it that I, I, I find inside of me this desire to rebel against every kind of constraint I put on myself? That's the law of sin and death. Paul said that it's in us. That's just what we deal with. But the wonderful news in Jesus, chapter 8, is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So Paul is unpacking the gospel all through the book of Romans. And he gets to chapter 9 and he deals with the problem of Jewish unbelief. He ends in chapter 11 with this glorious doxology. And then he moves into our text today. And I'm going to unpack that in a minute. But I want to just highlight something I discovered this week. Just this week, as I was doing research for this sermon, I came across a new phrase. Now, maybe it's not new to all of you, but it's new to me. Complexity bias complexity bias. Have you guys heard of that? No, I, you know, if I've, I've heard of a number of kinds of biases, like recency bias. For example, uh, when employers are interviewing people for a new job, um, there is uh, this tendency to favor the last person they've interviewed. It's called recency bias. And um, it, it, unless we're aware of it, we will fall unwittingly into that uh, because the last person we interview, unless they're really bad, and that happens sometimes too, I have to admit. But um, uh, if, if all things being equal and they all do fairly e equal job interviewing, you will favor the last person interview. So when I was interviewing for my last position, they gave me the choice. When would you want to be interviewed? There are four finalists. When would you like to go? I said, I'd like to go last. <laughs> I was playing to recency bias. And guess what? I got the job. Now, I, maybe I wasn't the best person for the job, but I got it anyway because I did it last. All right? So, complexity bias. What is this? Well, there, there's actually all this stuff written on complexity bias. 
Complexity bias, says one writer, is a logical fallacy that leads us to give undue credence to complex concepts. The writer goes on, faced with two competing hypotheses, we are likely to choose the most complex one. That's usually the option with the most assumptions and regressions. As a result, when we need to solve a problem, we may ignore simple solutions thinking that they will never work and instead favor complex ones. Now, let's think about this. The writer goes on and he talks about the devastating impact that complexity bias has in science. You think science is one of the most objective disciplines that we have, but scientists can actually be infected by complexity bias. They think if it's more complicated, it must be more robust. It must be more intellectually substantive. And so therefore, it must be the right path. That's not necessarily true. It happens in politics. But interestingly enough, it also happens in marketing. Yes, marketers, Madison Avenue knows that you have complexity bias. And so when they talk about things like ammonia-free hair dye or uh, face cream that contains peptides, you think, oh, that must be good. When in fact, that doesn't really mean anything at all. And, and you uh, will see these um, uh, drugs that you have to get a, a doctor's prescription for, right? The pharmaceutical industry discovered that it's actually more effective to go directly to the public with a marketing campaign for drugs that require prescription because patients will go back to their doctors and say, I saw this on TV, I wanna try it. And what they discovered is that these prescription drugs are even more appealing to the market when they go through a whole list of the things they could do to you. Yes, it could cause your eyeballs to fall out. It could cause your heart to stop. It could cause your lungs to collapse. And all the while, they're reading these things, and you see these people dancing, you know, who presumably taken this drug, and they're just having a great time with it. But, but you're thinking what they've discovered is because of complexity bias, people trust the product more when you talk about all these complex side effects or other issues. They actually feel more comfortable in the complex. May I suggest to you that when it comes to the things of God, we suffer from complexity bias. See, the gospel is so simple. You know, when God wanted to reveal to us the ultimate truth about himself, when he wanted to make salvation available to us, he did not write a doctoral dissertation. He did not send a philosopher. He did not require a theology course. He himself came in human flesh as a man and revealed the most profound truths in the simplest and most accessible ways. The gospel, the gospel is simple. The gospel 
does not require a PhD to understand. The gospel does not require a Herculean effort to live out. Romans 12, 1 through 13, is a summons to the simple life. It's a summons to gospel-centered simplicity. The Apostle Paul is inviting us in to a new life in Christ that does not require an advanced degree to figure out. All right? So, um, he spent 11 chapters now explicating the gospel. He's talked about it in the most basic, accessible, practical ways. But now, here's where the rubber meets the road. And when Paul begins chapter 12, if we were not using book, chapter, and verse, if we were just reading this text from the original language, we would see that Paul uses one of the strongest disjunctives in the language of the New Testament, Koine Greek. He, he basically says, bing, 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 bing. It's like the lights on. Okay, now there's a change of focus. Paul says, now I call you to my side. That's, that's what he says, says in Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Okay? So, what the Apostle Paul does is he shows us that gospel-centered simplicity happens because the gospel gives us a new perspective. He opens us up to this whole new way of living. We live as followers of Jesus Christ in view of God's mercy. Now, he's just taken 11 chapters to explain what that looks like. He's just ended in this beautiful doxology. And now he turns and he says, now... Live your life in view of all of that, in view of God's mercy. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 delineates these seven virtues of the Christian life. And then he says, those who fail to live that out, those who fail to experience the transformed life in Christ, they do so because they are nearsighted and blind, having forgotten the cleansing of their own sins. See, to live in view of God's mercy means that we live with the constant realization of what the gospel does for us. It lifts us out of the mire of our own sin and death, and it puts us into this wonderful new relationship with Jesus Christ. When we live our lives in the light of what God has already done for us, not what we have to earn, but what God has already given us in Christ, God has given us this relationship with him in which there's no condemnation. He's given us this relationship in which there's absolute freedom from sin and death. He's given us a relationship with God in which his mercies are new every morning. And when we live into that reality... It changes our whole perspective. I remember um, the first time uh, Diane and I were sharing the gospel. We, we went out to 
um, we, we met each other in Bible college in West Monroe, Louisiana. My dad said when I left for Louisiana, I was leaving from San Diego and, and, and uh, my dad came alongside of me and I thought he was going to give me this wonderful fatherly advice. He said, son, I just want you to remember one thing. And I thought, oh, this is one of those cool father-son moment things. He said, whatever you do, don't pick up a Southern accent because it'll make you sound like an ignoramus. <laughs> I thought, what? I never did forget it though. I mean, you got to admit, that's pretty random for something for, for a father to say to his son just as he's getting on a plane. So I, I was actually attentive to that until, until. I discovered one day after living there almost two years that while my speech patterns hadn't changed a lot, my singing changed profoundly. Oh, victory in Jesus. I caught myself singing that way and I thought, wow, it snuck in. It snuck in. You can't live in a place without it just soaking in in some way. But Diane and I met in that wonderful place. It was a life transforming place for both of us. And, and, um, this was before we started dating. This pastor, we had gone to this church, and uh, as students of the school, we were supposed to help provide support to this evangelistic campaign. So one of the professors of the school would go, and he'd be the evangelist. He would preach the gospel meeting, and we students would go out and invite people to come to this gospel meeting, and we'd share the gospel with people. So the main goal was to set up Bible studies with people and share the good news of Jesus. So we go knocking on doors. It was actually a terrifying experience. But Diane and I got into the groove and actually had some really funny moments along the way. But we had gotten into this one house. And, um, and so now they were inviting us in to sit down around their kitchen table or around their couch. I forget which. And... Um, share the good news of Jesus. So I'm sharing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about how Jesus died on the cross for our sins, how God has given us this new life in Christ, and how when he ascended to heaven, he didn't just go and sit in his heavenly hot tub and say, man, I'm glad that's all over. That was a miserable experience, having to come down and live as a human being and be tempted in all points and yet remain sinless and then suffer and die for the sins of all humanity. No, Jesus is up in heaven interceding for us, as 1 Timothy 2.5 says. He's the one man between that there's one God and, and one mediator between man, and that's the Christ, Christ Jesus. So you've got humanity, you've got God, and Jesus is that bridge that holds it all together. And what that means in practical terms, I said to the folks as I was sharing the gospel with them, I said, what that means is, and I think I used Diane as the example. I said, it's be like Diane. Diane's having a bad day. And things are not going right for her, and she's just having a terrible day, and, and, and uh, uh, things aren't, are, aren't unfolding the way they should be. And, and uh, Jesus looks down and sees Diane struggling and looks at the Father and says, Father, forgive her. She's one of mine. And just then, Diane breaks out in tears and she says, oh, I, I didn't know he did all of that for me. He does all of that for me. You know, and, and of course, you know, the folks there with whom I'm sharing the gospel, they're like, is this for real? You know, 
is this stage or is this like, is like the, you know, the best orchestrated sales pitch ever, you know? I don't know what they were thinking, but I for one was surprised because I thought she knew this already. Here, here was my problem. My problem was assuming that once we get to know this, once it becomes this deeply understood reality for us, that somehow the wonder and the newness wears off. Oh yeah, he did that for me. Yeah, yeah, he did that for me. I think Diane's reaction to the good news of Jesus Christ should never get old. I think that when you and I think about what Jesus has done for us, we should never, ever let that be received with cold hearts. I think we need to remember God's mercy. Paul said, I urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Everything that we do as followers of Jesus We do with one eye looking back to our forgiveness. When Paul said forgetting the things that were behind, he wasn't talking about that. He was talking about all those things in which we think we can boast. And we think we've accomplished something noteworthy with God. But you and I as followers of Jesus must never, ever, ever look back. Okay? When we experience the new perspective that comes through the gospel, we are able to know God's will in real time. Uh, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, Paul writes, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. When we are walking with Jesus, when we're offering our bodies as living sacrifices, when we're walking intimately with Jesus all the time, it means that God and we are living in such harmony that we can kind of sense what God is is leading us to do in that moment. The still small voice of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit nudges us speaks to us in these really quiet ways, and sometimes it's easy to ignore. In fact, I would say it's always easy to ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit. But when we're walking with God all the time, living into this new perspective that he gives us, we find the ability to do that in ways that are more sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So, as we go on then, what we see is the gospel orients us to a new devotion by giving us a new perspective. But there's another way that the gospel orients us to this simple devotion, and that's by giving us a new people. We see that in verses three through five. Now, Paul says, for just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Do you know one of the greatest longings that we have as human beings is the longing to belong? We long to belong. One writer addressing this issue of belonging 
says that human beings have a fundamental motivation to be accepted into relationships with others and to be a part of social groups. The fact that belongingness is a need means that human beings must establish and maintain a minimum quantity of enduring relationships. Now that's true whether one is an introvert or an extrovert, whether one is inclined to social engagement or not. All human beings need to be in fellowship with other human beings. I had a, uh, a friend who wrote a book. I don't want to give the title of the book because this is going online, so I don't want to get too specific here with the title because I'm not going to say I'm going to say something rather unflattering, so I, I would rather. This, this was a book about, you know, belonging. And uh, he, he, uh, he wrote this book, and he put the title of belonging in it, and it became a bestseller. It was a best-selling book. And I can tell you, it was a best-selling book more for the title than the content. It really didn't, it really wasn't a well-done book. It really wasn't, it didn't have that much substance. And, but people, when they saw the title, they were drawn to it. They were drawn to it because there's that longing in our own hearts to belong. We want to be part of the community. We need to be part of the community. And that is what the gospel does. Paul says that each member belongs to all the others. That's what he says here. And therefore, if we go back to verse three, it makes all the more sense why um, to do anything less is actually a more complicated way of living. Paul says in verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment with the faith God has distributed to each of you. What, what Paul is saying is, don't, don't assume arrogantly that you don't need anybody else. Don't assume arrogantly that, that when it comes to walking with Jesus in this new perspective, being transformed by the renewing of your mind as you offer your bodies as living sacrifices, don't think that's just an individual affair. If you think you can live your life without being in fellowship with the body of Christ, the church, you're actually inviting more challenges, more complications than if you simply embrace the truth that you belong. Because of your relationship with Jesus, you are rightly related with his body, the church. Ironically, we think that isolating ourselves is an instance of simplicity when on the contrary, uh, it's not. And um, uh, there, are, there are a lot of people, especially in our culture today, that think that I can worship God just as easily if I go out by myself in nature. I can worship God just as easily. You fill in the blank what that might be. I guarantee that God in his word is right. We can't live out the fullness of our life in Christ, the fullness of the gospel, and all of its wonderful simplicity without each other and each other's fellowship. So the gospel orients us to simple devotion by giving us a new perspective and by giving us a new people. And in verses six through eight, 
we see that the gospel helps us live out this simple devotion by giving us 